0: This week's Your Stories is brought to you by Know Your Company. Got 25 to 75 people in your company? Check out knowyourcompany.com, software that helps companies like Airbnb know their company better.
1: Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd.
2: You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about?
0: Hi, everybody. I'm Eric Garneau, and this is the second part of a special Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast, recorded at the Adler Planetarium as part of their Adler After Dark event last month. We picked the theme Runt of the Litter to tie in with their night uh, of Save Pluto, and we've got Chicago comedians and scientists sharing their favorite Runt stories. Uh, this episode, you'll hear from current Nerdalogs member Joe Gennaro, returning Nerdalogs champion Bill Kenkel, astrophysicist Melissa Brucker and Alyssa Bands, and comedians Matt Young and Jacob Horn, plus me, Jim. Sinatra, Dwight Hassler and Claire Friedman play some tunes by the chronically short. Uh, Just a note: we recorded through a soundboard for these episodes, and there's definitely a little audio peaking as a result of the live mixing, especially during the songs. I tried to minimize this as much as possible, but you'll definitely notice it, especially in the Dio song that closes the episode. But man, you just can't cut Dio. Hasn't Ronnie James been through enough? Uh, if you're listening to this episode the week it comes out, we have some really exciting stuff happening this weekend. Uh, the Nerdalogs will be out in Seattle in conjunction with PAX, that's the Penny Arcade Expo, a giant gaming convention, if you don't know. Uh, we're hanging out with Cards Against Humanity in the AX Theater adjacent to the convention all weekend, demoing and selling our brand new card game, Fisticuffs, and doing some shows. For instance, we have a Your Stories recording with some really special guests, 11pm Seattle time this Friday. Uh, I can't tell you who's on it yet, but I think you won't want to miss it. We've also got some sketch and improv comedy shows lined up Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. The full schedule will be released later this week uh, when the convention gets underway, and it will for sure be on our social media, so check that out. Uh, And if you're around, come say hi and try Fisticuffs. I think you'll like it, honestly. <laughs> uh, I'd also like to thank the sponsor for this week's episode, Know Your Company, and thanks to the Chicago Podcast Co-op for its continued support. You should absolutely check out other co-op shows like The Nerd MBSing, and Talking Games. And on Thursdays, the nerds are representing a wonderful music sci-fi podcast from Emmy Award-winning comedy writer Gary Lucy called The Ketchup, the last music podcast on Earth. I highly recommend giving The Ketchup a listen. Posting it on the NerdLog site is a total passion project for me. It's for sure one of my favorite podcasts, so I think you guys will like it too. Uh, but that's all I've got for now. So drop by the Act Theater in Seattle this weekend to hang with the nerds, and thanks so much for listening. Well, this, this artist is really short, um,
6: especially for a man. And we can't say his name, though. Because oh, yeah. he'll smell that his name was said <laughs> on a podcast and one of his songs was played and he'll have it taken down. So, so you're just gonna have to know who it is when I start playing. I,
0: I really hope you guys all enjoy this rendition of Lavender Precipitation.
6: <laughs> By someone that might in the future, when their father dies, become a king. <laughs> meant to cause you any sorrow Never meant to cause you any pain I only want one time to see you laughing I only want to see you laughing in that purple wanted to be your weekend lover I only wanted to be some kind of friend Baby I can never steal you from another It's such a shame I Had to win purple rain, purple rain, purple rain. Times are changing. It's time we all reach out for something new. That means you too. Say you want a leader, but you can't seem to make up your mind. I think you better close Let me guide you that purple rain, purple rain, purple rain, purple rain, purple rain, if you hear what I'm saying out there, people, raise your hands,
5: purple rain, purple rain.
6: Purple rain.
5: Jim
0: Snedecker! Yeah, Claire Friedman! All right, Alright, guys, we have coming up next, Joe Gennaro.
1: Uh, Thank you guys uh, for being here. Obviously, everyone came to the planetarium for us. We are the Nerdologues. Uh, My name is Joe. And I'm going to tell you something about me I'm a bathroom reader. I always have been. Comic books, puzzle books, book books. Just helps me relax, helps me get the job done. A few years ago, I was at a friend's apartment. And this was right after uh, the Chicago Blackhawks won their first of three recent Stanley Cup championships. Yeah, I think we're all kind of a fan of, of them, right? Uh, and I was at a friend's house, and I found myself in his bathroom with a timeout Chicago within reach, so I reached for it. And this was also like less than two years after I had moved to the city, so I was still getting used to the idea of a magazine just about the city that you live in. That was pretty cool. <laughs> so I was flipping through it, and I remember coming to an article about the totality of Chicago sports, and it began, I'm paraphrasing but not by much, something like, You know, it can be really tough being a Chicago sports fan. Other than the 1985 Chicago Bears, Michael Jordan's six championships in the 90s, the White Sox World Series in 2005, and the Blackhawks' recent championship, Chicago has had to put up with a lot of mediocrity. (laughs) The article then went on to talk about how all of the Chicago sports teams have had stretches of middling results when they weren't busy being the best in the world at their respective sport. I hail from Cleveland. (laughs) Land of Drew Carey and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Our Cuyahoga River has caught fire. Not once, not twice, but 13 times. 13 times! We are a town with, well, what is actually a a world-renowned academic hospital that specializes in cardiovascular disease, which is actually pretty cool. We also have a restaurant called Melt that serves deep-fried mac and cheese, so I think that hospital is more a necessity than a bonus. If that same article had been written in a magazine about Cleveland sports, which, sure, let's pretend that magazine exists, it would have been very different. Cleveland has had so many bad sports moments, and they have all been so bad that we had to give them names. We gave them one-word names. You know, it can be really tough to be a Cleveland sports fan. Other than the drive, the move, the shot, the decision, we've been lucky enough to experience some mediocrity. (laughs) Now, you might not know what all of those are, but trust me, they are bad. The world of Cleveland sports has been so full of blunders, missteps, and tragically bad luck that it is unfathomable that it is, exists on the same planet as other sports towns like, I don't know, New York or Chicago. You see, Cleveland has a very storied sports history. Storied, but not celebrated Cleveland has gone 51 years without a championship of any kind. That's a total of 144 professional seasons across four major sports, the longest current streak of any U.S. city, since we were last the best at something other than creating flammable water. Thirteen times! Thirteen times! The monument that stands tallest and proudest in our land of failures has to be the Cleveland Browns. Cleveland is just a football town, much in the same way that Sleepy Hollow is just an enchanted village. (laughs) We eat, drink, bleed, and breathe brown and orange, although the Browns did just unveil a new, much-hyped logo, which is actually just a different shade than it was before, so we bleed a much-oranger orange. (laughs) The Browns were the last team of any kind to win a championship for Cleveland in 1964, which was closer in time to the discovery of Pluto in 1930 than it is today. (laughs) Now, if any of you are knowledgeable football fans and we're at the planetarium, so I'm assuming most of you are, you may be thinking, but Joe, the Cleveland Browns have never won a Super Bowl. You'd be right. And please stop saying that. Despite the fact that Cleveland won eight, eight league championships, their final one was two years before the first Super Bowl. (laughs) It was the same thing. It was just called different. It was the same thing. In the 80s, the Browns were on the short end of both the drive and the fumble, both against the Denver Broncos, both in the playoffs, both in back-to-back years. Then our owner, the same owner who fired our namesake Hall of Fame coach, Paul Brown, who then in turn said, screw you, and went on to make the Cincinnati Bengals. Yeah, that owner. He announced halfway through the 1995-1996 season that he was going to be moving the team to Baltimore so he could have the taxpayers out there build him a stadium. The name stayed in Cleveland, but the team moved to Baltimore in 1996. They became the Ravens. The Browns came back in 1999. The Ravens won the Super Bowl in 2000 and 2010. Go Browns. Cleveland actually hosted an NHL team for two seasons in the 70s, the Cleveland Barons. They lost nearly twice as many games as they won, then went broke and merged with the Minnesota North Stars, who then went broke and moved to Dallas, where they won a Stanley Cup in 1999. Congratulations. Go Browns. The Cleveland Indians have two World Series titles to their names, one in 1920 and one in 1948. Pretty much the only stuff to happen since then is Willie Mays made the catch against us in the 1954 World Series. The Charlie Sheen movie Major League came out in 1989, and we lost a heartbreaker in the World Series in 1997 to the Florida Marlins. That has since been dubbed Game 7. And really, that's about it that's happened with the Indians. So go Browns. The Cavaliers have represented our most recent and our most real chance for our city to secure a championship of any kind. For a long time, the Cavs were not good. They came into the league in 1970 and never made an appearance to the finals until 2007. Do you remember Jordan's The Shot? Jordan over Elo? Elo was a Cavalier. <laughs> we had LeBron, then he left, the decision. Then he came back, the return. Now, of course, LeBron is a polarizing figure. He's the most dominant player in the league right now, an unstoppable force that is changing the dynamics of not just the game, but how players conduct themselves. He's created a lot of animosity from fans of other teams who would be feeling very different if he was feeling their uniform. Uh, Feeling very different. Yeah, I said that right. (laughs) Chicago, can you even imagine what it's like to have one player making everybody else so salty? Chicago, can you imagine? By the way, it was really nice of you guys to let the Houston Rockets win two NBA championships while MJ was retired and shooting a space jam. <laughs> so, Cleveland, yeah, this is way more important. So, Cleveland might be close, but we're not there yet. And we haven't been for a long, long time. Cleveland has not been as lucky as other towns, like Chicago. Since I've moved here and and read that article, there have been another two championships. And I, I do not begrudge this city. I am very happy for you. And I'm glad I got to see up close what a positive impact that this can have on a city's pride. All I can hope is that at some point in my life... I am lucky enough to see a group of 20- and 30-something-year-old millionaires triumph and bring back a piece of hardware to the city that they are paid to wear on the front of their work shirts. That is the city I am from. That is the city my family is from. The city whose river has caught on fire 13 times. Go Browns.
0: Joe, I feel like you really need a hug, man. Not for me, though. I don't associate with Clevelanders. <laughs> All right, guys. Coming up next, we, <laughs> I only hug winners. That's right. That's super not true. We have a couple speakers from the Adler Planetarium itself here tonight, starting with postdoc researcher Melissa Brucker.
4: So mine is not an underdog story, although I did have a really hard time getting to work when there was some kind of parade or something a while ago. <laughs> So, um, I have actually observed Pluto. Well, I tried to. It was cloudy. Um, <laughs> so, uh, in 2009, I got my degree studying the Kuiper Belt. My PhD was on the Kuiper Belt. Those little icy things floating around Pluto that made Pluto not actually officially a planet. Uh, but they're awesome. They're really cool. Uh, anyway, so... After I graduated, I started teaching at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and I had the summers off, no teaching in the summer, which was awesome, and I wanted a research project to do, so I called up my advisor. I'm like, hey, do you know anyone who I can work with over the summer? And he connected me with Dr. Leslie Young. Dr. Leslie Young uh, works at the Southwest Research Institute, and she studies Pluto's atmosphere. She was actually on the plane flight... Uh, in 1988, that had a telescope in it that discovered that Pluto has an atmosphere. Uh, and she happens to be one of the deputy science, uh, deputy project scientists for the New Horizons mission and the lead for the encounter planning. So, awesome. Okay. So, um, what we're doing is watching Pluto occult a star. So, some of you might be familiar with total solar eclipses. When the moon passes directly in front of the sun, we can't see the sun anymore. Um, and then the moon travels off and we can see like part of, part of the sun, part of the sun, more of the sun, and then all of the sun. Okay. So, we can do that with Pluto when Pluto passes in front of a star in the Milky Way. Now, you have to be within, like, a 200-mile swath of the Earth to see a total solar eclipse. How big do you think Pluto's shadow is? (laughs) Yeah, so... um, the fun thing about watching these occultations is that you get to fly to really interesting places because you have to be in just along the line of the earth where the tiny, tiny shadow will be dr- directly falling on you. Uh, so in 2010, uh, July 4th, I got to travel to Johannesburg during the middle of the FIFA World Cup. Um <laughs> And Leslie and I flew to Johannesburg, and there were other astronomers from her group. She's based out of the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder. There are two other groups that do these Pluto occultations. There's one based out of MIT, and there's another one uh, that is primarily European scientists, and they're based out of, out of Paris. So our team is based out of Boulder, and they had astronomers with small portable telescopes spread all across uh, South Africa and the Kalahari Desert in Namibia. And Leslie and I were at a two two and a half meter uh, one and a half meter telescope owned by the University of the Free State in Bloemfontein, South Africa, which was awesome. Uh, I got to take a little trip through their uh, little zoo. The uh, little like pet not pet like it wasn't a zoo, but it was more like kind of almost a safari. Lions and tigers and things. Like it was awesome. Anyway, so we. <laughs> This was like the summer of clouds. Like the Kalahari Desert never rains, right? It was cloudy that day, um, so we went there. And then the next summer, um, Leslie and I went to the Philippines. Um, so the the uh, Pluto is high in the highest in the sky in June. So this was the end of June in 2011. Leslie and I fly the 12 hour flight um, from. Uh, Utah from Salt Lake City all the way to Manila in the Philippines and then took another flight from Manila to the to Cebu City. And there were actually going to be a possibility of four occultations. On the 23rd, Pluto was going to pass directly in front of a star and we would see Pluto's atmosphere as the light dimmed from the star and then Sharon was going to cross right in front of that same star and we would see Sharon doesn't have an atmosphere. Awesome. It was cloudy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, on the 27th, Pluto was going to do the same thing with a different star, and maybe Hydra would go across the star too. Now, Hydra is really, really tiny. We didn't know how tiny, and we weren't exactly sure its orbit around Pluto was, so we didn't know for sure if it would pass in front of the star. Um, We think that it didn't, because we were in just the right place to see it if it had gone over. Um, So it was not cloudy that night. It was awesome. Um, uh, Just a side note, people who are as pale as I am should not be at 9 degrees north latitude. <laughs> um, so, so Leslie and I observed Pluto pass in front of the star. We got this great light, great light curve. Uh, other members of our team were spread north and south across Australia. Um, we had someone in the tiny island nation of Nauru, um, which has only one flight to and from Australia once a week. Um, there were other observers... Um, that our host Christopher Go had contacted to observe this event, also in Malaysia and in Thailand. Um, it was typhoon season in Japan, so they they were kind of batten down the hatches. Um, so that is my Pluto story. I have seen Pluto with my own eyes.
5: <laughs>
0: Thank you, Melissa. Man, there's some impressive people here tonight. Um, All of you guys. You're all impressive. Right, let's give it up for you guys, huh? Ah! Why did I turn into some stereotype? Uh, You guys! Hey! You guys! Hey, Chris! Want us some pizza? Oh, I'm going to stop with that. All right. Also, from the Adler Planetarium, Alyssa Banz.
3: okay hi guys um so uh a couple quick preamble things one the the songs to begin were great but i would just like to say that gwen stefani is five six which is exactly my height and that is not short um okay yes five six um but it was great Nerdalog sounds really fun uh Really interesting. I am also, um, like Melissa, I'm a postdoctoral researcher here. Um, uh, my name's Alyssa Bands. And, um, unfortunately, I'm not an uh, observational astrophysicist. So I, um, I write, uh, computer simulations. So I don't have exciting travel stories. Um, and I need to read from this piece of paper somewhat, or else I can talk forever. Um, so I'm gonna try to read from this piece of paper. Um, so yeah, astrophysicist here at the Adler Planetarium. My work is on the formation and evolution of solar systems. Particularly, I look at solar systems around other stars. Um, so sadly, I have no Pluto details to tell you tonight because my research has never focused on the dwarf planet of the hour. Uh, so I can't regale you with wonderful tales of traveling across the globe to, to chase Pluto's shadow. So I decided to go... For a more personal approach, because when I thought about Pluto, I realized that Pluto and I have a lot in common, um, as much as somebody can have in common with a distant giant ball of rock and ice. Uh, Pluto grew up the runt of the solar system, you could say. And being the youngest of three sisters, I grew up the runt of my family. So a little intro of Pluto, despite uh the common misconception that Pluto was named after a Disney character. Pluto actually got its name from an 11-year-old girl. Little Venetia Burney thought of the name Pluto. Venetia's grandfather was a librarian at Oxford and knew many astronomers, so he told them about his granddaughter's suggestion. And Pluto, being the Greek god of uh, the distant underworld, and the first two letters, P and L, could have, um, standing for Percival Lowell, the astronomer who first searched for Pluto, made the suggestion very agreeable to everyone, and so Pluto stuck. So the first thing in common. Like Pluto, I too was named by a small child. Um, my oldest sister, who was nine at the time, got to name me. The minute my parents told her that they were having another baby girl, she was done. I mean, she packed a tiny suitcase, threatened to move to my grandma's, that's how, like, fed up with the sister crap she was. And I guess my parents thought that giving her um, naming rights would sort of soften the blow. So to this day, I'm extremely grateful that I'm not named Demetria Raspberry, which was the favorite name she gave all of her stuffed animals and, and Barbie dolls. So I lucked out on that one. And in general, growing up with bigger, older siblings isn't easy. Uh, Pluto definitely feels this pain. It's uh, a small mass. Uh, its small mass makes it an easy target for the gravity of other planets in the solar system. In fact, if Pluto had ever wandered a little closer to the sun, it probably would have been captured by one of the ice giant planets, just like uh, the moon Triton was captured by Neptune. So it would have been thought of as a moon, um, Today, Pluto and Neptune do a bit of a funny 500-year-long dance woven by gravity. For every three orbits Neptune takes, Pluto takes exactly two. And I guess you could say uh, I was influenced by the gravity or rather cunning of my big sisters when I was a kid. My middle sister had this cute stuffed bunny creatively named Bunny. And I loved Bunny. I wanted to hold Bunny. I wanted to play with Bunny I'm not sure I ever wanted anything more. Uh, well, my sisters knew how to use this influence against me. And for several years, I was basically their personal servant. If I didn't get my sister a cookie and a glass of milk right away, uh, Bunny wouldn't be my friend. And uh, eventually, when I got older, Bunny lost its charms and I moved on. But it was a long and arduous journey. So I know a lot of the reasons people are here tonight is because there's concern for Pluto. Pluto sitting there in the cold outer reaches of the solar system, demoted to dwarf planet, forgotten. Uh, but I, having had many Pluto-like experiences so far, wanted to assure everyone that I think Pluto will be okay. On one cold Minnesota day, my mom, running late to drop my sisters off, quickly dropped me off in front of the doors of my preschool. Little did she know, the preschool was actually closed that day. Luckily, the doors were unlocked because they were doing some repairs. But still, there I sat alone, like Pluto, forgotten. I know, sad. But you know what? That was one of the greatest days of my four-year-old life. Um, I ate my lunch right away at eight a.m. <laughs> no waiting. Um, which I think, as most preschoolers would say, is the most difficult part of preschool. Um, it was amazing. Uh, the, my earliest memory—I remember playing with all the toys with no other kids as competition. I, um, I—it was the only time I got to play with those like red cardboard brick blocks. Yeah, people know what I'm talking about, which were the hottest commodity at preschool. So this was the only time I ever got to go anywhere near those. So my point um, is that Pluto may be a dwarf planet now, forgotten by future astronomy textbooks, uh, but it gets to hang out and play with the rest of the Kuiper Belt objects. No solar system planets getting in its way. Um, and I think Pluto, dwarf planet or not, uh, will stay special because of the stories we tell of it. Um, so I think Pluto will be Okay. Okay.
0: Thank you, Alyssa. Pluto, it's going to be okay, guys. We're making it okay right now. We're telling his stories. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're all here. We've been hearing about real space a lot tonight. But you know what else is cool is fake space. So coming up next is the uh, star of improvised Star Trek, Captain Baxter himself, Matt Young.
7: (laughs) Kearney Calvin Halford, my maternal grandfather, was born on April 5th, 1916. He served in Korea. He had six children. He outlived three of them. On September 6, 1987, when I was almost 13 years old, he took his own life. Casey Jones was born early that same September. She was a boxer and the runt of the litter. She lived a full life, sleeping in the sun, tearing up Sears catalogs, and barking at the vacuum cleaner. I grew up in Decatur, Illinois, a town for which I never had much sentiment. It was around this time that my mother and father, who married when they were very young, were fighting a lot. One day in eighth grade social studies class, I decided I was going to ask them if I could go stay with Grandma and Grandpa Halford. I was unhappy. That same day, I remember seeing my mom in the car behind the bus on the way home from school. I remember sitting in the kitchen and learning about my grandfather's suicide. I remember going to my grandmother's house and playing with my cousins. I remember crying in her bathtub. A few weeks later, it was my 13th birthday. My parents were driving me out to someplace desolate. I was bored and didn't much care. We pulled into a driveway next to a shambles of a house in the middle of the country. I saw the dogs around their mother trying to nurse. I'm not really sure I knew the Broxer breed by name then, but my parents looked at me with this anticipation having shown me that they've taken me here to get a dog, and I looked and I went, man, they are ugly. (laughs) We stood outside and I met the dogs. My dad negotiated with the breeder. I could have my pick. One of them, brindle-colored, was smaller than the rest. I noticed she would get pushed out and away as as the bigger dogs fed from their mother's teats. I knew which dog I was taking home. Casey was immediately named after my grandfather, Kearney Calvin, K.C., as he often went by. I insisted that her last name be Jones, mostly because I'd heard of the poem, not because I liked it. I got annoyed with the vet for calling her Casey Young, as I would insist you can very easily see they were not related, and (laughs) she, she had her own last name, and I would dream of getting more dogs, Indiana Jones, Grace Jones. They would be the family that lived with my family. She was my dog, and I was her boy. And if you're not an only child like I am, this might not seem like that big of a deal, but the idea of being a boy and his dog, I mean, that had a magical quality that I felt my, my life was sorely lacking A true blue companion who would never let you down. I remember teaching her tricks. She could sit, lay down, speak, and if you went bang, she would fall over dead. And then she would immediately jump back up and expect a milk bone. I remember putting baby powder in her jowls to train her not to drool as much. I remember her sleeping by my legs late at night when I tried to stay up and catch Letterman. I played catch with her, I fought with her, I ran with her, I picked up her poop, and I fed her. It was all great, except the poop. Maybe a year or so after Casey came to live with us, things were still hard in my family. I struggled fitting in and finding my place at school, and after school on one occasion, I remember putting a plastic bag over my head, expecting to suffocate myself. Now, this was the most half-assed suicide attempt ever. I was in absolutely no danger whatsoever. (laughs) But I remember being sad and mad and, I don't know, just um, upset uh, at everything. But Casey came into the kitchen where I was standing with a bag on my head, (laughs) and she barked, and not a fun, playful bark, a concerned bark. Bark. An owner knows. It upset her to see me like that. I remember pulling the bag off and seeing her. She was mad and she was ready to bark again. I let her know it was okay. It's okay. It's okay. I was never in any real danger, but she saved me nonetheless. Pretty good for a run. In 1998, college was behind me. Decatur, Illinois was far, far behind me. I'd been living in Chicago for about a year and a half. I was finding my sea legs as an artist and a human adult. My dad called me on a cool fall morning. Casey had died. She apparently seemed shaky that morning, not uncommon for an 11-year-old boxer, old white face I had dubbed her in college, but she walked around the house over and over looking for something. The something, we concluded, was me. Eventually, she went into my room, got up on the bed, and passed away. Thank you for being there for me when nobody else was. Casey, I'm sorry I was not there for you.
0: All right. Uh, Jesus Christ, I don't think I've ever cried at your stories before. (laughs) Fuck. Oh, my God, I love my dog so much, Matt, and that story. Okay, so... (laughs) Uh, when you guys bought tickets to this event, uh, you had the option of submitting your own stories to be read on this stage, and some people did, and a couple of them were chosen, and they got, like, a VIP package and shit. It's really cool. You're rewarded for your bravery at the Adler Planetarium, and this next gentleman is one of those people. This is Jacob Horn.
2: Okay, hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Uh, hello. So, um... Similar to Alyssa, uh, I was the biggest runt of my family. Uh, I, was, I was a chubby little guy, you'll understand as the story goes. I maxed out at about 220 pounds when I was in high school, uh, but by being the runt, it has nothing to do with the size for me so much as like the size of the shadows of those who came before me. Uh, I had two older brothers, and any of the school teachers, any of the adults in my community, if they ever knew that I was a horn boy... Uh, they would they would have two reactions depending on which brother uh they knew. There was either Zach. He's my oldest brother. Uh, he was he was a wild man. He was your stereotypical bad boy, partier, rager. Uh, he would go drag racing out in country streets. We grew up in just farmland, uh, where you know county roads. Sometimes they're gravel, sometimes they're paved. Uh, almost all the time they're being driven on at like 90 miles an hour by these reckless young youngsters, do underage drinking, things unheard of for a nerd like myself. Uh, he threw these like random parties, like stereotypical 90s parties where my parents weren't home and he and his buddies would bring their muscle cars, their Camaros, their Firebirds. Uh, it was like a 90s rendition of Greece: loud music, loud cars, it was everything. Uh, but then in the morning, everything would be back to normal. Uh, I hope my, I hope this does not get out of this room. I don't want my brother to find out that I've said this publicly. Uh, I still don't think my parents know about those things. Um, my other brother, his name is Adam, he was a high school deity. Uh, I hope I'm saying that right. A D-E-I-T-Y. I don't know. I just say things. Uh, he wore, he would wear all white sometimes in high school. He would just wear a white shirt, white pants, and Chuck Taylors, and just walk around. And everyone loved him. I would wear, I would wear, like, sweatpants and a fanny pack, because I was diabetic, and I would need to put, like, you know, like, juice boxes and stuff. And, you know, I would get made fun of. I, it's comfortable, and it has a purpose. Okay? I think it was it was much more of like a confidence sort of thing, and I did not have that. Um, and so, with their shadows, uh, they were they both had something in common. They both played sports, and so I kind of had to follow in that footstep because it was expected of me. They played sports; I play sports. Zach was a linebacker for the varsity football team. Adam played basketball, wearing those Chuck Taylors again. I don't know if he was any good. I don't think anyone else remembers if he was any good. He was just like a Harlem Globetrotter of charisma. That's all he needed. Uh, and for me, I just focused on those not moving positions for all of the sports. Yeah, all of the sports. Because uh, those keeping score at home, 220-pound Jacob, uh, I still played basketball, football, rugby, track, uh, and soccer, uh, but I would try to find those not moving, uh, sort of positions. Uh, I settled in, I did, I was a center for football. I was still the smallest lineman though, which is fascinating. Uh, but my coaches would tell me, just throw the ball between your legs and duck down. We don't need you to do anything else because I would just like hope that the defense wouldn't even think to go around me. That was my hope. My, that was my prayer. Uh, I settled on being a goalie for soccer uh, as opposed to like a catcher for baseball uh, because I liked the idea that people weren't aiming directly at me at these seventy miles an hour fastballs uh, but it didn't matter uh, I was still just like following in their footsteps so I tried to like branch out uh, and try to find an identity for myself the little the little runt the big little runt that I was uh, and i and I focused on music for a bit uh, and I tried to like you know, like, join a band. Uh, but even that didn't work uh, because it was a ska band filled with all of my all of my brother's, Adam's friends. Uh, Mark Beck and the leave-in conditioners. So it was basically like, <laughs> oh, I've, I've got a book full of them. Uh, and it was just like, they were just thinking to myself, oh, horn knows how to play a horn. Little horn can play. Let's get him in. Let's do this. Um, and so... I tried to pursue that, tried to keep going, uh, did music in college, uh, that still didn't, tr- I didn't really try to go too far out of the shadow cause I went in my hometown of Appleton, Wisconsin. Uh, and in the first week of college, I remember an upperclassman that I knew, uh, he was like a junior and I was a freshman and I, and I ran into him and I talked to him, found out that we were both from Appleton. Like we were both you know, we're in the same city. We just went to different high schools. Uh, and, you know, caught up for a bit. And he was about to turn away and go. And I hear this girl ask me, be like, oh, who was that? And he says, oh, that's Little Horn. Couldn't even escape it then. Uh, so I, I, there was only one, one thing I had to do is the way I stopped being the runt, stopped being Little Horn is I ran away, basically. Uh, I was the first horn to make it out of the state. Even though it's just across the border, uh, the day I graduated, I graduated at 11 a.m. and by 11 p.m. I was moved into my apartment here in Chicago. <laughs> okay, thank you, uh, thank you. But that's that's when I realized, like, it finally sank in. I didn't have to play it safe. I didn't have to follow in the footsteps of my brothers. I love them dearly, uh, but it did feel like that—that that it wasn't—it wasn't like suffocating. It was more just like. Uh, a fortress just holding me back of just like, this is what we've established. You're not going to be able to surpass this unless you get out of there. Um, and so I did, I, I moved here, pursue my passions of ska writing, urban farming, you know, the usual twenties sort of stuff. Um, and this nice little caveat uh, I found recently was about a month ago, my brother sent me a text. He He's a, he's a uh, youth educator for a parish up in Green Bay. Uh, but during the summers, when he is off, uh, he does landscaping for our town. And uh, so he works with a kid that I coached. Once again, finding that lazy position where I didn't really have to do anything, uh, imparted some sort of wisdom on these kids, even though I don't know how qualified I was. Uh, and this kid's name was Grant. And Grant talked about me as if I was some sort of god, apparently. And my brother uh, says he was bragging to a friend that he works with Jacob Horn's brother. This is the first time in history those words were ever said. No one has ever referred to either one of my brothers as Jacob Horn's brother. Uh, I told him this, and he congratulated
0: me. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Jacob. Congrats on making it out of Wisconsin. Oh Wisconsin's not so bad, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Alright guys, we have one more storyteller tonight, and it is it is a real treat. So I don't remember if this was said at the top of the show, but the Nerdlogs is we're a sketch comedy group that's kind of branched out into we do these shows, they turn into podcasts. We actually just designed and kickstarted a game that's coming out later this year, so that's pretty sweet. Um we've been going for five years now, and as happens when you're in a long project, people come and people go. Uh, this gentleman was one of the founding members, and then he moved to Boston to do his postdoc research, or his doctoral research, studying voles. And now he's back in Bloomington, Indiana, I think still studying voles. But tonight he's here. This is Bill Kenkel. Hey guys.
8: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming out here to uh, indulge in science and to celebrate it. Um, i 've clearly kind of orbited science for a while now I 'm my second postdoc, so I feel your pain, astrophysicists i 'm so sorry <laughs> um, but But this is such a, a a far departure from my normal scientific routine um, like like Mr. Garneau said. I spend most of my time down in in Indiana. I work at the Kinsey Institute, which is a center for sex research, which sounds like a lot of fun if you 're any of my coworkers. Because you study sex. I study the consequences. I study childbirth. So I study why birth in our species is so difficult, dangerous, and deadly. Uh, There's a guy down the hall from me who studies hookups. I spend a lot of time thinking about people bleeding out of their vaginas. Why? Because I hate fun <laughs> why is why is childbirth so difficult that's a great question and I would I would place the blame for that squarely at the feet of one of our species greatest strengths and greatest weaknesses I'm talking of course about the placenta no cheers wow okay All right. uh,
5: what
8: what does the placenta have to do with Pluto well I I hope to uh, instruct you on, on what I see as a connection. You see, humans are a K-selected species. When, when evolution provided us a spectrum of how to go about our reproduction, we could choose quantity or quality, and we went hard on quality. We invest so much in our offspring. Each baby is a precious treasure. It is a miracle. We are like the elephants. Elephants have a gestation of two years to bring one calf into the world. Also, that calf does not pee the entire time. So when the elephant calf is born, there is a torrent. (laughs) So that is us on one end of the spectrum. We are K-selected. We treasure our offspring. We love them. We nurture them. We invest heavily our resources into them. On the opposite end of the spectrum, it's called R. It doesn't matter why the spectrum goes from K to R. It doesn't matter. It's called R. R. Think of species over here. Think of, um, think of sea turtles. Think of all those like thousands of hatchlings struggling to get back into the ocean, getting picked off by seagulls like some sort of horrible Normandy beach scene in Rewind.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
8: and it, it sounds cruel and heartless, but it's just a different strategy. It's just the way they do things. Fish do it with eggs. Mice do it with pups. Professors do it with grad students. There's just an acceptable rate of attrition built into the system. But humans invest in our offspring. We put so much of our nutritional oomph into each and every one that we treasure them. Okay, so so mammals invest in offspring. Uh, I've always said that if, if mammals had a flag, if there was one thing that we would rally around, it is a boob. Mammals are all about investing in offspring. Primates take that to another level. Primates invest even more. Apes invest even more than the average primate. Humans invest even more than the average ape. We are tremendous. A chimpanzee, when it's born, weighs 3% of its mother's body weight. Humans are twice that. Yeah! (laughs) Human uh, gestation, a human pregnancy, is 37 days longer than would be expected for a primate of our size. So how do we accomplish this? How do we accomplish this a remarkable investiture in our offspring? It's the placenta. The placenta is the organ that provides the, the, uh, the developing fetus nutrients from the mother's bloodstream. And the words that are used to describe the human placenta are mildly terrifying. Uh, it is called an invasive placenta. It is a parasite par excellence It is invasive, it is interdigitated, it is interconnected with the maternal blood supply, providing an incredible amount of surface area with which to uh, provide the developing fetus blood, all these nutrients that it needs. Oh, gosh. Uh, And what that does is that allows us to build these tremendously complex offspring that that are humans, that we, we... have evolved these incredible brains because of this incredible investiture that I am making a word, goddammit. <laughs> but but when the nine months are up and it's time to go your separate ways, the placenta does not go quietly into the night. All of that surface area and interdigitation, uh, it's gruesome, just, just take my word for it. <laughs> and all of that blood turns into, can turn into blood loss. And to this day, and probably throughout all of our evolution, uh, postpartum hemorrhage or bleeding childbirth, hey, it's a fun, drinky evening, postpartum hemorrhage. (laughs) It's the leading cause of maternal mortality. And it probably always has been because we invest so much, we put these incredible placentas in so that we can provide our our children with uh, these incredible nutrients. So so how do we deal with this? Well, if you're going to take that level of risk in each and every baby that you produce, you really have to treasure it. We, you know, we say that it takes a village and we are a cooperative breeding species because we come together to to wet nurse and to allo parents to care and babysit for each other's offspring. We are so heavily case selected that we have to treasure each precious miracle of a child. Think about the effort and the money and the science that goes into each premature baby. That is unbelievable. The only thing I can think of, or the only thing I will choose to think of, is the effort that we have put looking into the night sky, seeing a tiny, cold, remote planet on the corner of our solar system, and thinking, that is a runt. And it deserves to be loved and treasured. And we will build a marvel of technology and send it careening through the cosmos just so we can say, hey, Pluto, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> Somebody cares about you. So that's, that's what I'm saying tonight. Me, the, the consummate, uh, cold-hearted killjoy who studies postpartum hemorrhage, that which has drawn us and driven us to Pluto is the power of love. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Bill Kenkel. All right, we're going to play Huey Lewis in the news, The Power of Love. This is kind of a theme song for Pluto, I think, which is why I really want to get this song in there. This is by a great man by the name of Ronnie James Dio, who is like five foot three, like Muggsy Bogue size. But uh, it's pretty amazing. This is called The Last in Line.
5: A ship without the sun
0: That's probably, I'm going to say, Dio has never been heard inside the Adler Planetarium before. I could be wrong. Maybe unlike someone's, like, headphones, but probably not, like, broadcast. So thank you all for making Ronnie James' life legacy just a little brighter. And Vivian Campbell. And Vivian Campbell.
8: That one was for you, Dio. He's actually (laughs) probably in hell, so. uh, We've got
0: Your Stories is a proud member of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you like Your Stories, you might also try Improvise Star Trek. Improvised Star Trek is an improvised parody of Star Trek featuring the adventures of the crew of the USS Sisyphus, a slightly less enterprising starship. You can catch up with the show at theimprovisedstartrek.com. This has been a Nerdlogs production. For more on the Nerdlogs and our shows, please go to www.nerdologues.com. Thank you all. Thank you all.
1: I am GrabBot23548X